0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. All right, Joe, we just got done with me uh, just flowering praises upon Penn State people for what was truly an incredible trip and the ultimate experience of hospitality that I've had from opposing fans. Now, let's go to something that's not hospitable, Joe, and I don't know why it's even still ongoing, and that is the dominance of the Memphis Tigers over every Ole Miss or Mississippi State team that plays them. I don't know what it is, Joe, but Memphis has just got the Mississippi schools' numbers. doesn't matter how good they are. I was there five years ago with Chad Kelly where we were, you know, we had a chance to kick field goal to get up by 10. Instead, Hugh Freeze does the stupidest fourth down play in the history of time. Pete our fans get mad about Brian Harsin all they want. Uh, Hugh Freeze runs the ball with Robert Kimdichie on a slow-developing outside play. Not only does he not even get close to getting the first down – Kim gets knocked out of the game with a concussion. Literally the worst football play I've ever seen in my entire life. We lose the game to Memphis. That was a great team. That was a team that beat Alabama. That was one goofy bounce away from beating Arkansas and finally winning the SEC West. Eli Manning in 2003 with Ole Miss went down there, lost to, lost to Memphis in the year where they almost won the SEC uh, outside of a field goal that LSU made to beat them and win the national championship. Uh, point being – Mississippi State's have the same problems. Joe, I think you told me on the phone yesterday, you can only think of one time in your entire life that Mississippi has beaten Memphis in football. And so what that goes to tell you is, why are Mississippi schools still scheduling Memphis? Memphis goes out, beats Mississippi State this weekend, and it just further cements it. I mean, it is just, you got to know that if you're a Memphis fan and you see Ole Miss or stay on the schedule, you got to really like your chances.
1: Yeah, especially when they're hosting at Memphis. Like I've seen Ole Miss beat Memphis at home. I think our last year of law school in 2014 Ole Miss won that game at home pretty easily. But it's like when they go to Memphis, it's just a completely different story. And I think part of it is the crowd just shows up when these SEC teams come in. Like it could be a ghost town for any other home game. But when uh, the SEC comes in, especially Ole Miss or State, it's like they pack the house.
0: Well and you gotta think too, Joe, Memphis is such a melting pot of different states, different communities. I mean, part of it's in, you know, part of it's in Mississippi, part of it's in Memphis, part, part of it's in Arkansas, part of it's in Tennessee in terms of where people live, that they have all the fan bases there pretty much. And you gotta think, if you have Mississippi State fans and Ole Miss is coming, they might come to a Memphis game to be Memphis fans just to cheer against Ole Miss. Same thing when Mississippi State comes into town. Ole Miss fans might do that. You know, Tennessee, some of them might come in. You get all these different fan bases, and you're right. It creates a kind of hostile atmosphere to where not only do you have the Memphis fans there, you have the fan bases from all your rival schools who may be coming just to cheer
1: against you. That's a good point. To be like you, you know, as an honorary Penn State fan, going to like an Alabama Penn State home and home.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. If I lived in Tuscaloosa and I had my great experience with Penn State, i will just go just to cheer on Penn State. But you have that in Memphis with all the different fan bases. And you're right. I, mean, I was blown away with how loud the Liberty Bowl was when I went to that game in person. A lot of Memphis fans there, at least alleged Memphis fans. Uh, it was a pretty cool environment, and they really got into it. Um, I mean, of course, you know, the Liberty Bowl is a, you know, you can tell it's it's a relic. It, you can tell it used to be nice, like in the 1950s and 1960s. And it's like Ladd Peoples and Mobile. Better than Ladd Peoples initially, but still, they both gone downhill and look rough, Legion Field in Birmingham. They are old-school coliseums that never got the love they deserved. But even with that stadium, which if you take one wrong step, it's going to collapse within itself, the Memphis fans bring the noise, and every time a Mississippi school goes up there, they lose.
1: Yes, and they sometimes lose in difficult fashion. You talked about the Kevici play a few years ago. You think about Mississippi State with that travesty last weekend on the, uh, the punt return that wasn't. And, you know, just the officiating and the questions there, just, you know, you kind of leave that game with a bad feeling.
0: Well, here's my question, Joe. That is a clear error on the part of the officials. Obviously, when a ball hits uh, the kicking team's player, it's marked dead. That's that's the way the, the rule is. You you know, when Mississippi State's kicking a punt, if it hits their player right there, it's marked dead where it hits it. But – my question is Should there be some fault on the special teams coach in this to be safe? Yes, that's the rule, but we're, we play SEC football. The officials are wrong about things all the time. You can't ever assume that something's going to be the case. Once that guy picks up the ball and starts running with it, you have to still play defense.
1: Yes, yes. And that's why you know, you'll see so many times, even if a flag is thrown, a receiver or a running back will sometimes take it all the way to the end, to the end zone just to be safe. Because you can't assume, you're absolutely right. And I was really surprised that uh, the coaching staff was not also more vocal about trying to appeal the play Mm -hmm. since it was such a bad call. And then finally, a takeaway that I always think when I'm watching games like this, and this kind of goes back to that Saints-Rams game a few years ago in the playoffs, it always frustrates me when everybody knows what the call should be except for the officials on the field. Like, I feel like in 2021, there's no excuse. There's got to be some way that, an intervention can be done.
0: Well, Here's my question, Joe. I mean, my understanding of this, and I've not been to the SEC front offices in Birmingham, is that they have like almost like a death star of officials where they sit in a room and they watch all the games and they can have upper-level calls get sent to them and they can put some kind of input on on it. On a play like yes. this, why on earth is Birmingham not getting involved and been like, hold up, y'all, you have to morph that guy down. Take a commercial break, look at this for a while, and fix it. Like, this is a play where they can do that.
1: Yes, and that just causes, you know, such – like, like if you don't do that, you just cause all this controversy. Why not fix it and then you don't have to worry about that, you know, as a bad look for the conference?
0: Right. Or, hey, let's talk about the Auburn-Penn State game. They could have done that on that third down thing where they marked it at fourth down. That's a pretty obvious one. Everyone in the world is talking about it. Why don't you send yeah. that down to Birmingham to be like, okay, guys, take an extended TV timeout. We'll give the ball back to Penn State on third down. That's the right call.
1: It's not that hard.
0: It's really not that hard.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. No, SEC shorts, That you know, humorous video series, they did like a spoof on what you're talking about with a fourth down play. The guy said that as an official, if he doesn't know what down it is, he just says it's fourth down and <laughs> it takes a few plays. That was play a funny one, that,
0: that take your daughter to work day, like teach her how to yeah, get that yeah. SEC official. <laughs> my, my,
1: my dad, the, the official, yeah.
0: Yeah. Those guys are hilarious. I'd love to see if I can get them on the show sometime. That dude is so funny. They're good. I'll keep that as as a future uh, guest in mind. Um, But, you know, the point is, yes, that was a bad officiating gaffe, but Mississippi State's not supposed to be in that situation with Memphis. But history tells you that they are supposed to be in that situation with Memphis because they're supposed to lose. I think if I were the Ole Miss athletic director or the Mississippi State athletic director, Next time Memphis says, hey, guys, you want to schedule a home-and-home, you're like, how about no?
1: No, absolutely not. And I heard somebody say this week, um, an analyst, that there's no advantage to playing Memphis, even in basketball, really, because, yeah, they'd help you out in basketball, but the time of the year that the game would be would be like November or December. when You're not going to get a good crowd anyway. So that kind of even more so takes away the advantage of having ties with Memphis.
0: So Joe, I heard some some things too that apparently the big 12 has said they're not done with expansion yet, and that Memphis could be like the next one of the next couple teams they're thinking about bringing in because they want to get up to 14. I personally would have loved to have seen Memphis be involved in the first round. I mean, you think about where Memphis is located in, there's a lot more ridiculous teams in the big 12 geographically than Memphis i.e. West Virginia, which I just feel so bad for them about this stupid travel they have to take all the whole time. But Memphis, I think, yeah, they're in the SEC's footprint. But if they're not, if you're going to go to the next footprint that makes sense, it is the Big 12. So I think that, you know, they have enough resources. Maybe if they got into a Power 5 conference, they could demo the old Liberty Bowl and get a legit-looking stadium, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I would love to see it. And I think that they play well enough with Power 5s. They're a big enough school. They don't even have to recruit outside their city. I mean, if you had a real Power 5 school in the city of Memphis – they would be great because they could just recruit within 40 miles and they'd have a perfectly good football
1: team. That's true. There would be a lot of talent to work with.
0: Yeah. So, food for thought. I would like to see it. Uh, moving on, Joe, um, you know, let's talk about the other big game of the weekend outside of the Penn State Auburn game. And that was Florida and Alabama. Uh, Joe, I, I hate to call you out on it. And you have every right to call me on it when you make a bad pick of the week. Your pick of the week was Bama to cover the 14-and-a-half. You thought they would go out and destroy Florida. I said I thought it would be a tight game. Maybe not as tight as what it ended up being. I kind of thought maybe it would be more like a 10-point game. But I got to say that you don't want to panic if you're an Alabama fan right now, but you should be a little bit concerned about what happened with Florida having every chance to win that game. Sands are bad two-point conversion call and a missed extra point, and they did it with Emory Jones. They didn't do it with Anthony Richardson. I mean, that Anthony Richardson guy seems like he has such a higher ceiling than Emory Jones does, but Dan Mullen's refusing to play him for some reason. Um, and with that being said, I mean, Alabama got up, what, like 21-3 to three in that game, something like that? Mm-hmm. And Florida came back and really dominated the second half. And, Joe, this is not the Florida team we saw last year. I think this is a much diminished Florida team. And I think now you you take that with they had a good chance to lose against Florida Miami is a bad football team. Everybody like throwing wall at, it, at Alabama for beating up on Miami. Shoot, I think 10 out of the 14 teams in the SEC can beat Miami the way that Alabama did that day. I don't think that's anything to be excited about. And the question is, did we overreact to Bama's excellence and are they overrated? Not saying they're not the number one team in America, but saying that there is not a substantial gap gulf between them and every other team the way that it's been laid out to us.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I was feeling really good about my pick when it was 21 to 3. I, I, was, like, <laughs> I was like, this might even get 30 to 40. And it's one of the few times I can think of Alabama building a substantial lead and then almost coughing it up. Like, that just doesn't seem to happen to them. I mean, normally you'll see teams sometimes rarely get a big lead on Alabama only to throw it at the end, like an old miss or somebody like yeah. that. And so it was really weird to see the, flip, the script flipped. Where Alabama fans had to almost, you know, survive and get nervous into the last second with like, you know, two point conversion attempts and things like that in the fourth quarter. So yeah, I think that it probably shows us there's not as much of a substantial gap as we thought, and that this Alabama team could definitely lose the game. Um, But we'll just have to see. You know, we'll find out so much more about Alabama next week when they host Ole Miss. Yes, we will. And Joe, there's a lot of people now that are
0: starting to get on the Ole Miss is going to make the upset. Bandwagon on this. People talking about, well, Lane Kiffin, he's going to be the first guy to break this dubious streak that Nick Saban has of beating all of his assistants, and never losing a game to him. There's a chance for it, but we will broadcast that more next week. But on that subject, Joe, why don't we look at what Ole Miss did and just absolutely dominating two lane? I didn't get to watch it because, of course, I was up in Happy Valley and, you know, at this point I had no cell reception. This game would was probably like midway through by the time mine was done. And I didn't get to watch any of it. But the score just blew my mind. This is a two-lane team that went toe-to-toe with Oklahoma, just about beat them. I think they dominated the team they played last week. And, frankly, Joe, uh, I, didn't, I didn't I didn't, make a real bet over in Biloxi on this. But in my office pool, I actually took two-lane on the points. So I didn't think Ole Miss would cover that. And Ole Miss just shocked me. What a beautiful win. And really just an impressive win against a very good group of five team.
1: Yes. And I think you mentioned a great point. You know, Matt Corral still is not committed to turnover this year. I mean, Lane Kiffin has just made such a wholesale change of him. I mean, it's just night and day difference. It's hard for me to think of any Ole Miss quarterback. Where we've seen such a significant upgrade. It's hard for us for me to think of any SEC quarterback where I've seen such a difference in a two-year um, swing with what Matt Corral looks like back in 2019. we talked about that Memphis uh, being a house of horrors. Matt Corral's first ever start at Ole Miss was Pathetic at Memphis. The yeah. game they lost 15 to 10, where, where the offense looked really porous. So yeah, I mean the Ole Miss offense now looks as good as any unit in the nation, and it's just they can stretch the field. Corral's arm strength is just so good right now, and I, I'm just also impressed because they don't have Elijah Moore, and you don't see a drop off.
0: No, I mean the, the guys are picking up. You don't have a guy that is the equivalent of an Elijah Moore. But Drummond's picked up his game. Braylon uh, Sanders has gotten a little bit better. He's shown a lot of veteran leadership. And of course, I think Mingo is starting to really get up to the kind of level that we expected him to play. And what makes him so much different than past Ole Miss teams, not only do you have yet again these great wide receivers, which Ole Miss has had for a while now. I think the last 10 years, they've been pretty solid at the wide receiver position. I think you could make an argument that outside of Alabama and maybe Ohio State, They've had the best wide receivers in America over the last 10 years. I think there's, mm-hmm. there's an argument to be made right there. But they don't just have that now. They have a very depth-filled running back room. Run. You look at uh, on Ely, fantastic guy who can break a big play, good at receiving the ball too. Snoop Conner, big bruiser. And then Peter Parrish is also very good. So I mean, they have three really solid running backs, and you can make an argument that collectively they have – one of if not the best running back
1: groups in america oh absolutely and you know as far as their starters there's 22 starters in the lineup i mean they're really as good as just about anybody depth is really the only question mark can they you know sustain a key injury that would be the question hopefully that doesn't happen um but i'm um, just really impressed with what i'm seeing right now just the confidence coming from uh, kiffin on this program and then on the defensive side of the football, I think – I've heard a lot of people say this – the transfer of Chance Campbell coming to Oxford mm. has made such a difference on the defensive side. Uh, Chance Campbell seems like he's a great leader for the team.
0: Yeah, and that's something that I'm seeing with the team that I haven't really seen in a lot of old Ole Miss teams. I see I see a leader in offense in Corral, and then i also see what Campbell's doing in middle linebacker position for Ole Miss on defense. But you're talking about this wholesale change in Corral. It's not just in his ability to not turn the ball over in crazy spurts like he's done before. It's in his leadership, Joe. I mean, you saw him in the past, especially that first year, in close games. I mean, he was a gear in the headlights. He was angry. He didn't take responsibility for his own actions. He was combative with his own coaches. Made me not like the guy, frankly. I'll I'll be honest about it. That's another reason I liked Plumlee. Pumley just seemed like a better person, a better person role model to want to have your team by. But I look at Corral this year, I don't see that. He is he, He's being very methodical with the way he distributes the ball. He took what was a difficult situation, which was Lane Kiffin being sidelined by COVID, and he really became a coach on the field that day against Louisville. And he even did things like when that player got kicked out early in the game for the ridiculous ridiculous targeting penalty, I saw Matt Corral on the sidelines putting his arm around him and talking to him and saying, hey, man, it's okay. Nobody blames you for what happened right here. That's a terrible call. You know, pick your head up and, and go on your way. And I just I saw that, and I'm just impressed with how much Corral has developed as a person and a, as a leader, too. I think that's a huge thing.
1: Yes, and he's becoming more of a gamer, too. Like, you know, he has the ability to run the ball and get in the end zone. I think he had, what, three rushing touchdowns last week, mm-hmm. had one or two against Louisville in the first game. I mean, he's becoming kind of a multi-dimensional player, and just, you know, the maturity just speaks volumes.
0: Absolutely. Now, Joe, someone that hasn't really grown and developed in their time like we thought they would is Scott Frost in Nebraska. You and I have been talking about a lot on the show just because of how much hype he had coming in. And I personally paid attention to the story a lot because I remember Nebraska when I was a kid, how much of a powerful program they were. They were kind of like Alabama now, especially in the mid-90s. And I've met so many Nebraska fans. They're kind of like uh, Penn State fans. I thought maybe they were the nicest fans I've met before. I haven't been to a game there, just my experience with Nebraska fans. I've always liked them. And I thought, you know, after what Scott Frost did at UCF, that amazing game that he planned when they beat Auburn 23 to 20. I thought he was going to be just a shoe in at Nebraska, a guy who won a national championship there, a guy who's from the Nebraska area. who's bringing all of this momentum. I, I didn't, I would not saying that I would have thought Nebraska would have been like in the college football playoff now or anything, but I thought maybe they could have won a big 10, whatever West title. Uh, they changed their names, of their conferences so much with like the legends, and the leaders and all that kind of stuff. I don't even know anymore. Whatever big 10, like, you know, uh, division they're in, I thought they would have won a division crown by now with Scott Frost. Well, we all know that it's been very, very far from what I said. In fact, they even made a bowl game. But what they did last week, Joe, was what I said I thought they needed to do to get Scott Frost a little goodwill to maybe survive this season. I said last week that if they could hang within a touchdown of Oklahoma, then I think that would do wonders for them the remaining of the season. And if he could build on that and just make a bowl game, doesn't matter what bowl game it is. It could be the Poulon Weed Eater Bowl game. you know. It could be the Charmin Toilet Paper Bowl. It doesn't matter. If he makes it, then I think he keeps his job. And so him getting that, that game when they played competitive with Oklahoma lost by a touchdown, coupled with making a bowl game, I think he keeps his job.
1: No, I, I think so. I think that really gave him a boost that they really needed. You have to still make it to a bowl game. But, you know, it's, it's hard to decide whether, you know, that, speaks more about Oklahoma because we've seen Oklahoma struggle against Tulane as well, or whether it speaks more about Nebraska. I mean, I guess the jury's still out on that. So we'll see where Nebraska goes the rest of the way. But my other takeaway on a comical note, I started wondering when you said Charmin, uh, does Sharman actually sponsor a bowl game?
0: No, they should though. I mean, can you imagine how much money they made off the pandemic? I think they have enough money to host a bowl game. Plus, how funny would that be to have like the Charmin toilet bowl? The you know the Charmin toilet paper bowl, but I think it would be better for it to be just the Charmin toilet bowl, and it's like the teams like that barely make the cut from like power fives, maybe ones that had high expectations going into the season. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know, if Alabama had a year where they went like six and six, and Ohio State had a year where they went six and six, they play each other in the mm-hmm. Charmin toilet bowl.
1: I, I would actually watch bowl games like that more if they had, had a team like that.
0: I would too. If we're gonna go with these terrible like sponsor names for bowl games, can we at least make it funny?
1: That'd be a funny game, like for us to really cover and like have like a special show on the Charmin toilet
0: bowl. A special show on the Charmin toilet bowl. That would be fantastic. I'm just like you know, hold our toilet paper during it. Here you go. Special sponsor, yep. Charmin toilet bowl. Which would be even better. they would love to have Auburn in that game because of the rolling of the tumorous trees. I think Auburn might actually be the number one draft pick in terms of like someone to to choose for that one. There you go. Sharman just you know like donates like a whole bunch of like Charmin toilet paper for Auburn to roll Timbers corner after they win the Sharman toilet bowl. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs>
0: all right, Joe. Speaking of uh, a team that was in was all roses, and now they're like looking like the toilet bowl. How about UCLA? What an embarrassing loss they had over the weekend. You and I have been lauding our praises on Chip Kelly. We're saying, well, Scott Frost went this way, but Chip Kelly's been going this way. Like, look at the great win they had against LSU, where they looked more physical and more talented than LSU. They're the team that can compete with Oregon in the Pac 12. Like, look at UCLA. It's good to see them back. Okay, we have all this, you know, all this redundancy, all this overinflation of of what Chip Kelly's doing. They go out, and in the wee hours of Saturday night with nobody watching, they lose to Fresno State. What an embarrassing loss. And what a terrible, terrible, awful loss for the Pac 12 conference. I mean that's just got to be gut wrenching for them because they had two teams that looked solid. They had two and two teams. You could say, hey, look, this team went out and beat LSU. Oregon went out and beat Ohio State, and now they lose to Fresno State. Absolute embarrassment.
1: Elaine Tiffin's on the monitor. Just thought of, but yeah, I mean Fresno State. They, um, you know they really have not been much of a factor since Derek Carr was on the team seven or eight years ago. Yeah, I really can't haven't heard as much about them the last few years. And I know that that they're 3-1 and one now. I think maybe they're ranked after that win. But, yeah, that's just an inexplicable loss for UCLA and kind of just um, um, stops their season in some ways when it was on a, a really good trajectory.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, even if they weren't going to beat Oregon and win the Pac-12, you wanted them to have – one or two losses, and if they go out now and they lose like two or three more games, no one's going to talk about Chip Kelly again in the off season. Uh, this is a this is a scary place. We're going to see how much he's really developed his team and how strong they are based on how they react to this, because they've been in L.A., the center of the media universe, hearing about hey, you're Los Angeles football right now. You're our hope. You're looking really good. We're proud of you. Proud of you representing Southern California. And now, suddenly the media is going to have turned against them in the course of one week. How strong are these players? Are they going to be able to shelve that and be like, okay, we lost this game. We can still win the Pac-12, though. This is not a Pac-12 game. We can still have a great season. Or is it going to shatter their dreams and they're going to go downhill, which is something that UCLA football has done a whole lot of in the last 20 years.
1: Yeah, going to be the big test because it takes you know a special coach to be able to rally the troops. Like I remember Frank Beamer back in 2010, after Virginia Tech got off to like a one and two or zero and two start, they lost to Boise State, and then they had that shocking loss to James Madison. James Madison, yeah. They were able to rally the troops and still run the table and win the ACC, but like that takes a, a special coach to do that. I don't know if Kelly, you know, is going to be able to pull that off at UCLA.
0: I don't know. He's never seemed to me to be like the most inspiring kind of coach. He seems to be more like a strategy kind of coach, kind of like a Gus Malzahn where, you know, they're more like a mad professor back there more than make any kind of loyalty from players or anything like that or inspire any kind of, you know, hard effort. Um, Yeah. But, Joe, the last thing I want to talk about, while we're talking about West Coast football, how impressed are you right now with BYU? Don't you wish if you were the Pac-12 you would have offered BYU entry? Now BYU is about to join the Pac, the Big Twelve. Why are they not joining the Pac Twelve? I mean, what what idiots ran the Pac Twelve when they didn't offer BYU a, a, a selection in there right now? Should BYU right now? They could be playing in the Pac Twelve championship game. They're three and against Pac Twelve South opponents the last three weeks, and they look amazing. So Arizona State, Utah, Arizona, uh, this is a great looking BYU team, and. I really wish that there was an eight to twelve team playoff right now, so I could see what BYU could do. Because Joe, I still fear that BYU doesn't have enough they can do to get into the top four, no matter
1: if they win all their games or not. We, you know, the all great points, and you forget—I almost forgot—that Zach Wilson, you know, was on the team last year, number two draft pick, and they haven't missed the beat without him. Mm-hmm. You know, last year they thought they were trying to get in the playoff front. Last year is kind of an outside chance, but you're right with the um, the, uh, the Pac-12. Because it would have been great to have them in the same conference with Utah absolutely with that in rivalry.
0: I mean, how much more would that have made the Holy War a more exciting thing nationally to have it be a Pac-12 game that has implications on who wins the Pac-12 South? Because they're both, I mean, Utah's a team that's frequently in that. So that could be a game that maybe costs Utah that chance or elevates BYU to that opportunity. And right now, if you're the Big 12, you're like looking at the BYU and you're like, look at us. Man, we're coming out good on this. Yeah, we're losing Oklahoma and Texas, but we're replacing it with a pseudo Notre Dame brand. You think about what makes Notre Dame so nationally Mm -hmm. followed is that it's not just a team that people in the area like or people that went to school there. People of a religion like it. If you're a Catholic Mm -hmm. person and you don't have a team, you tend to be a Notre Dame fan. If you're a Catholic person in general, you may not have Notre Dame as your number one team, but you like them. I mean, I... I've been, you know, I'm Catholic now, and now Notre Dame's a team that I like. I think it's just something that happens. If you're a Mormon, BYU is your team. They are a team that represents a religion in the United States, and they have a lot of power because of that, and they have a lot of media capabilities. And in my mind, I don't know that you have a team outside of USC in the Pac-12 that demands that kind of viewership, USC and Oregon, but they would be instantly the number three most watched team in the Pac-12.
1: Yes, and because, you know, of the religion behind the schools, like you have a national fan base, exactly. and you have people, you know, like you said, that, like I know people from Mississippi that went to BYU, so I mean, it's just... I've met people from it, Mississippi
0: that went to BYU, too, yeah. Yep. So, absolutely. So, I mean, it, it just, to me, that, that was an inexplicable error on the part of the Pac-12, and they're not going to be able to get a school that's as good as BYU.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: So, but that's what I'm saying. That's an interesting story to watch. I think that BYU should be given a chance if they go undefeated in a four-game playoff because they got real men on that team. They got they got real players, quarterbacks, O-line, D-line, running backs. They have guys that are that are tough that play like real man style football. It's not any kind of like air raid stuff or anything like that. They play SEC style football, and they do well when they pay Power Five teams. So I would like to see that.
1: Mm-hmm, definitely.
0: All right, when we come back, we're going to preview some of the big games this week. Not exactly the compelling slate we had last week, but there's some ones that I'm kind of interested in. We talked about Mississippi State, and we talked about the toilet bowl. We could be seeing a toilet bowl today between LSU and Mississippi State in a game that kind of decides maybe which of these coaches is going to be gone soon. And then, of course, uh, in terms of the surprising teams, we're going to see Arkansas take on A&M. Is this Arkansas team for real? We'll find out, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in the next segment. Catch us every Wednesday night, generally, at 9 p.m. You can also uh, follow us on on Twitter, and then you can also uh, like our Facebook fan page. And, then, of course, the best thing you can do is listen to all of our episodes on Spotify. Just look at the Dan and Joe Sports Show, and all of them are available. And as always, I'm Dan. And I'm Jeff.